the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon, uh, or good evening. Uh, Welcome to the Monday edition of The Ride Home. Happy that you're with us. It is the 5th of February. I don't want to jump the shark too much, but it feels like spring. It does feel like spring. And you know what? Mm. It's going to come back and bite us. You think? Yes. Like? Because we're going to get a huge snowstorm or something. We're going to have like sub-zero weather at some point, and we're going to be totally out of practice. That's the problem. Right. It's not that I'm ungrateful, but I'm saying if you get out of the, you know, the boot, mitten, scarf dance, then it's very hard to... Resubmerge. Well, it let's really make, is. I just say make, make hay while the sun shines, oh, because the day okay. is here. And on Thursday, it's supposed to be fifty-eight. That's so. just. That's crazy. We have not had a winter in Pittsburgh. No, was it I three know. years? I know. Maybe three or four years going on, right? It's true. Right? It's true. Anyway, we're happy that you're with us here today. We sure An are. excellent show lined yes, up for you. it's true. Much going on here. Yeah, in the 5 o'clock hour, can I just give a little yeah, jump a little ahead peek. as to what's happening? Um, 5 o'clock hour of the program, 16 rules of modern dining. Mm-hmm. What should you be doing and what should you really not be doing? This is Emily Post. Uh, this is from The Guardian. Okay. So we'll talk about that. Um, also, the Omni William Penn is reopening uh, a classic Pittsburgh restaurant for dinner. Uh, we'll chat a little bit about that. Also, um, an important social story that uh, kind of was on the periphery of my growing up years and probably your... I don't know, junior high years. First serious, well, not not the first, but one of the major news stories of, I think so. of my young life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 50 years ago today. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. Um, also, our good friend Alan Noble will be with us to talk about his outstanding book on getting out of bed. He's going to be in Pittsburgh in just a couple of weeks for the Jubilee Conference. Um, and also, uh, the U.S. is, um, well, they've angered the Brits, not for the purposes of military, not in the area of geopolitics. Politics, but instead, they're talking about tea. <laughs> okay, well, that's quite a selection of topics. Yeah, for Brits don't show. want anyone telling them about tea. Mm, as well, they should. Because yeah, they feel they are... very proprietary about okay, that. Okay, this is the Boston Tea Party 2.0, perhaps. Right. All right, but as we always do, uh, Kath gives us an update on the news stories of the day. Of course, they're always brimming over. So without further ado, Kath, the top four at four. For Monday, February 5th, 2024. Number one, the U.S. military on Friday carried out strikes on more than 85 targets in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for the deaths of three U.S. service members last week after an Iranian-backed militia struck Tower 22, a U.S. base in northern Jordan. The Pentagon said the U.S. strikes targeted a variety of facilities used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and linked militias. And also the National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said that there will be additional response action taken by the administration 
administration against the IRGC and these groups that they are backing. That is from today's dispatch. Number two, Chinese-Australian dissident writer Yang Jun was today handed a suspended death sentence for espionage in China, Beijing said, five years after he was detained on a rare visit to his homeland. The Chinese-born Australian citizen has been in jail since 2019 on spying allegations, is said to be in ill health. His pen name is Yang Hengjun, and he has denied any allegations, telling supporters he was tortured at a secret detention site and that he feared forced confessions may be used against him. His sentencing is one of China's heaviest in public trial for espionage in years. He gained a huge following in exile for his spy novels, and he calls for greater freedom in his homeland. But he was sentenced by Beijing today um, in a uh, in a case that shocked the nation. It was found that he was guilty of espionage, sentenced to death with a two-year suspended execution, and all of his personal property confiscated. Interesting. Australia says, for their part, they are, quote, appalled at this outcome. 60 Minutes last night had a story of all these Chinese expats flowing into the United States illegally through Mexico by the hundreds. They stood there with their cameras and counted people. Boom, 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 boom. Last night, 60 Minutes. Well, that's a pick-me-up, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Number three, a second storm within one week pummeling nearly the entire state of California with heavy rain and life-threatening flooding. Governor Gavin Newsom has issued a state of emergency for L.A., Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino, San Diego, Santa Barbara, Ventura counties, where floodwaters have, floodwaters have inundated roads and high winds are knocking down power lines and trees. The second fatality has been confirmed. Over half a million people wake, woke up, I was going to say waked up, woke up to day without power. And number four, Taylor Swift won the award for Album of the Year last night at the 66th Annual Grammy Awards for her album Midnights, becoming the first artist to win four Album of the Year awards. And it was quite a night. Yes, I missed it. It I'm surprised to say that I watched it because I didn't think I would, Mm -hmm. but I'm even more surprised to say I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell, Annie Lennox, Tracy Chapman. And that's your top four. four. All right. Okay, we'll take a quick break. As we always do, we're going to step away, and uh, we go to the White House. Monday is Greg Clarkston joining us from the White House. That's next for Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home right here on 101.5 Word FM. That's W-O-R-D. go now to the White House where Greg Clarkson joins us. Greg Clarkson is the SRN News White House correspondent. And every Monday at this time, he brings us up to date on goings on in and around the nation's capital, the country and the world. Greg, welcome back. Happy Monday. Hi there, John and Kathy, and uh, hello from Washington. Good to be here. Yeah, happy to have you, Greg. Uh, Let's start off our conversation today talking about uh, the military strikes um, against these groups that are backed by Iran. What is the latest and what is uh, the White House's response? Well, the latest is that we can expect more of these military strikes, the kind that we uh, started to see last Friday. And this is in retaliation that the Biden administration said was in retaliation for the Iran-backed group's attack, that drone attack that hit that U.S. military base uh, in Jordan near mm-hmm. the Syrian border a week ago last this past weekend. And, of course, three Americans were killed in that strike. Dozens were injured. And so starting uh, last Friday, um, U.S. time, the U.S. uh, started carrying out military strikes. There were um, more than 85 targets 
in Iraq and Syria that were targeted. Now, it's interesting because these are Iranian-backed militias and organizations, but the targets were in Iraq, not Iran. There was not a direct attack against Iran. Uh, But what's interesting is that the White House is is coming out and saying, first, two things, really. One is that uh, these strikes were not the beginning um, I mean, I'm sorry, we're um, we're just the beginning of what the response is going to be. So it's going to be a multi-day, perhaps multi-week effort of retali- of targeted retaliation. And then secondly, and this is the hard part, and the, and the White House and the Pentagon, they have admitted this, that the president does not want a wider war in the region or specifically with Iran. So how how is the response from the region going to be to these military strikes and whether or not it, uh, it exacerbates uh, tensions that are already there in the Middle East? So that's what we're looking at right now. And it's, it's a tough call. Yeah. So these are, are Iran-backed groups, but they're located Iran-backed groups, but they're located in Iraq. But it's not the Iranian government, too. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, you have the White House saying that Iran is ostensibly behind all of these efforts through training, through funding and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the targets, yes, they were in Iraq and Syria. And these are some of the locations where they operate from. And so there were direct targets against command and control centers and military uh, depots and that kind of and and that kind of thing. But in terms of going forward, the U.S. does not want to go into that direct confrontation with Iran in terms of sending strikes into the country of Iran, although um, the U.S. has also said if there's ever going to be a, a direct response from Iran uh, to this retaliatory action, that the, that the U.S. and American military response would be swift and forceful. So uh, the warning is there from the U.S., but they also want to contain any sort of, you know, widespread, uh, you know, explosion of this kind of uh, tension that we're already seeing. This is very complex. It's such a weird story, and it only benefits, I mean, only uh, only is connected to the Middle East, which itself is a, a weird story as well. So you can't imagine what the diplomatic channels are like, the military channels. I mean, I can't imagine how many wheels are turning right now in the Middle East, Greg. Well, that's exactly right, John. And these military strikes that were carried out on Friday, for example, they should not be confused with the other U.S. and British-led military action that's been going against these Houthi rebels out of Yemen Mm. uh, that have been attacking those uh, shipping vessels in the Red Sea. I mean, it's all a part of the the whole Middle East problem of of, uh, of tensions right now, a lot of it dating back to the the Hamas attack in Israel on October 7th. We've seen uh, all of this increase activity over these last few months. So the military, U.S. military now uh, going at, at a couple of different levels here, one against these Iranian-backed groups uh, that were in Iraq and Syria, and then also this ongoing response to the uh, the Red Sea attack. So there's a lot of activity in that region right now. So no connection between those two. No, I'm not saying that there's no connection, but they are they're separate military operations Got it. Got it. Uh, being carried out. The U.S. specifically carried out these attacks on Friday because it was in response to an attack on American military personnel. But the Red Sea attacks uh, is more of a concerted effort with the British and other countries and other allies that are also being affected by those Red Sea vessels being under under fire. So, yeah, uh, interrelated, but uh, but also separate at the same time, if that makes sense. From the White House, we're speaking with Greg Clugston, who is the SRN News White House correspondent. Greg, let's move forward. So uh, President Biden, his team, they are bracing for classified document report. What is this story, please? 
Well, if you remember, we had um, not only Donald Trump facing classified document um, potential violations and all the rest, but also documents were found uh, in the Wilmington, Delaware home of Joe Biden, as well as a think tank office in Washington, D.C. And uh, even uh, there's been an, an ongoing effort of cooperation between Joe Biden and the special counsel that was assigned to the case. Now you have Axios and some other news media outlets reporting that the uh, the final uh, you know, report could be released as soon as this week. We don't know mm-hmm. if it's going to be this week, but it's it's potentially getting very close to this. And what's interesting is that a lot of Biden aides, both at the White House and on the reelection campaign, uh, they don't believe that there are going to be any criminal charges against Joe Biden for holding on to these uh, sensitive classified documents the way he did. But they're bracing for what could be uh, some embarrassing details that would come out. And it could be, a, it could be, for example, a very sternly war- worded report, you know, essentially saying uh, this was uh, you know, not a smart move by Joe Biden and how he, he dealt with this. And there's also concern among the Biden team that there could be some embarrassing photographs. For example, remember when we saw pictures at Mar-a-Lago of, of boxes yes, that were stored the, there the by the cl- Donald Trump? Yeah, like I still remember the closet I still remember and bathroom the and a ballroom. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, some of the boxes that were found at the Wilmington, Delaware home of Joe Biden were in his garage, a locked garage next to or near his Corvette that he's had for years and years, a family gift. And so just the idea that, uh, you know, or the appearance that these boxes were not uh, kept in in such a uh, as a potentially a secure location as you would expect some government documents. So what would be embarrassing about the photos is that they were treated lackadaisically next to a case of oil. Yeah. I guess. Yes. Lack of day, like or or concern that the Trump campaign would try to essentially say, um, you know, kind of put these two cases on the same level. Now, J- Donald Trump is facing felony charges in this case. We're still awaiting what the special counsel's uh, you know, verdict is going to be in this matter, um, although it may not reach the level uh, that Donald Trump is. But they're just concerned how it's going to be played out mm-hmm. in the political uh, in the political arena. And uh, so they're they're getting ready for that possibility. Interesting. Uh, let's talk. Uh, move forward to another story, Greg, from the White House. Uh, Greg Clarkson is with us. So uh, the immigration bill has become sort of a political football in Washington, D.C., which involves Ukraine and the southern border. Tell us about this, please. So this is a, uh, a major proposal after months and months of work. Uh, senators, bipartisan senators, uh, have put together this package. It's a $118 billion package. It's something we've talked about here on this program in, in past weeks. And it would cover a lot of things. It would have money. It would have um, uh, money for Ukraine, both military and humanitarian assistance, and the same for Israel. But then also built into this package uh, are some reforms as well as some additional government funding for securing the southern border here in the United States. And uh, it's really the issue of the border policies that has got Congress all up in arms now, or at least a lot of members in Congress um, uh, responding to this. This package was uh, revealed yesterday evening um, going into into last night. And so we haven't even had the details on this for 24 hours. But you've got the House Speaker and other Republican leaders in the House saying that if it gets passed in the Senate and sent to the House, it's already dead on arrival in the House. They're not. And there's even a question as to whether the the House would even vote on this matter. What's interesting is there is a lot of 
um, there's a lot of teeth. There's there's a lot more. Uh, there are a lot more restrictions and limitations placed on border crossings and dealing with illegal immigrants and that kind of thing in this particular bill than what has been uh, proposed or even gotten to this level in Congress in perhaps a couple of decades. And that is that that's been one of the rallying cries from a lot of Republican lawmakers, for example, of getting tough on the border. In many ways, this bill does get tough on the border. But now there's also the political element of Donald Trump saying that he doesn't think this bill should go forward. And a lot of his allies in Congress don't want to give a potential victory, a bipartisan victory to Joe Biden and the White House in an election year. I got, and that's uh, where things stand right now. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we try to stay out of the opinion game when the three of us talk because we're just trying to talk about what's going on. But I just have to break from that and say that that incenses me just it, because it's just another uh, it's Power another play. example of how politicians aren't these particular politicians are not concerned about solving actual problems or dealing with actual issues. Um, we're just going to play politics with it. I know politics involves everything in Washington. But to me, this is an extraordinary case, especially because if for everything I've read about the Senate bill, it seems like this is something that the House Republicans would rejoice at. There are a lot of things in there. Uh, but yes, they're pointing to a handful of things. And, and what, one of what the don't things, they like about it? Well, one, one of the items uh, that's in there um, that some of the, the, the advocates and, and supporters of the bill say has been uh, have been has been uh, misconstrued or misrepresented in the public debate on this has to do with allowing 5000 people to cross the border before some of these um, policy restrictions, you know, get triggered into uh, into action. And uh, James Lankford, we talked about him last Monday. Yeah. He's one he's one of these key Republican uh-huh. negotiators, senator from um, Oklahoma. And he um, he said that this is a this is a most misunderstood aspect. He says the law is still going to be um, followed um, as as the as the border agents and and other officials are are dealing with an influx of people coming across the border. But it's being portrayed by opponents as to saying that four or five thousand immigrants are going to be allowed in daily before there's there's even sort of uh, any sort of response. And uh, again, you've it's kind of a he says. She said, sure. you know, kind of uh, issue on this between and, and the thing is, there are a lot of Republicans that are divided on this issue. While that you've got the Republican leadership in the House saying it's dead on arrival. There are other members of the GOP House caucus uh, that are, are looking at this more favorably. And somebody like James Langford, we talked about last week, he was even censured by his home state right. party for even being involved in these talks in the first place. So that that goes to kind of the political component, Kathy, that gets you so upset. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Train wreck. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listen, I need to ask a personal question because we haven't delved too much into, you know, I like to give Greg some kind of, you know, curveball sure. at the end of our conversations. And Uh-oh. I've been kind of lax on it, to be honest, since 2024 started. So uh, we're talking about T-Next because uh, the U.S. has been critical, U.S. scientists in particular, about some things about how Brits serve and uh, drink tea. The differences between U.S. and tea in um, Britain's yeah, and, tea response. And the U.S. Yeah. feels like, you know, they've achieved uh, they're perhaps at a higher level scientifically than the Brits are. And the Brits, are, of course, outraged. Um, I'm wondering if tea is any part of your day. And do you have any emotional investment in U.S. versus Britain here? Uh I would. I, I like tea. I, I don't drink it on a daily basis, mm. uh, but we but we do have tea. Yeah. Um, 
and and my wife is a coffee drinker and a tea drinker, so we you know we have both in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but we um, I, now when you talk about the British style of tea, like for example, I know some Brits personally. I know have some friends who have a British background, and they often will put uh, milk or right. cream in their sure. tea. For example, I do that. Um, that that is something that I do not do. I'll mm-hmm. drink tea straight, whether it's a flavored tea or whether it's just kind of a breakfast blend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, I might put a little bit of lemon or honey in. Sure. Uh, but not cream and tea, no. Right. How about a tea cozy? Mm-hmm. Tea cozy? No, no. All right. He's not cozy about it. So. What about ice yeah. in the tea? Iced tea. Uh, oh, sure. Absolutely. Iced tea. And I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the Arnie Palmer. Oh, hey, isn't that delicious? That's Pittsburgh. Thank you. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love yeah. it. I, I, I try to keep my pinky uh, out when oh, I'm sipping my tea. Good. So i got to be honest. I don't mean to be critical, Greg, but you're straddling the line there. I mean, you're, you're keeping your pinky out, which would please the Brits, but you're not putting milk in your He's tea. I don't, I don't really know what to say about you. Right. Well, like you said, I, I, we try to keep things diplomatic mm-hmm. and non partisan oh, There we go. That's He's good. A true pro. That's it's, very it, good. It's bleeding over even into this kind of topic. <laughs> Thank yeah. goodness. We need some yeah, straight-ahead reporting, Greg. Thank you for that. Also. Thank you. Boy, I, I feel better talking about tea because I was incensed there Ooh, for a minute, but I had, I had to bring it down. And, Settle you know. down there. All right. Greg Clarkson, SRN News White House correspondent. Information about Greg and SRN News at wordfm.com. We'll take a quick break. Come back. Uh, the aforementioned tea topic, that's straight ahead on the ride home. Breaking news right here. Two hundred and fifty years after American revolutionaries dumped tea into Boston Harbor, a fresh diplomatic storm is brewing between Britain and the United States mm-hmm. over the cherished beverage of tea. Britain's Which media, I'm drinking as we speak. I'd like to I'd like to salute you with it. Hot tea? Uh, no, this is iced tea. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, Twinings. It's a uh, Lady Grey. Extra bold. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Well, Britain's media has reacted with fury and bewilderment. After one United States scientist claimed that the perfect cup of tea is made with a pinch of added salt. Michael Francie, who has written a book on the molecular, molecular science behind a good cup of tea, believes the addition is needed to reduce the amount of bitterness in the drink. But the suggestion has led to a heated response on social media from Brits who are notoriously possessive over their perceptions of best brewing practices. Quote, I guess we're going to war again. <laughs> Legal journalist Molly Quell wrote on X, what really is going on over there, said British comedian Matt Green. Francie, who is a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in here, Pennsylvania, defended his seemingly re- re- radical idea to CNN affiliate TV News claiming, quote, it turns out that a tiny amount of salt, not enough to even taste, blocks the perception of bitterness. We'll find really? out more about I, this. I, that's not remotely interesting to me. That sounds terrible. I would try that. Would you? Yeah, because you do. I mean, tea, if you steep it for an extended period of time, you like the boldness. But the longer you steep, it does become bitter. Teas that become bitter, I just don't like. Hmm. I, I really don't like that. I mean, I like a, I like the that boldness. Yeah. But I mean, I guess if it's a salt level that I wouldn't taste. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Just a little tiny pinch takes the edge off. 
I like it. I like the idea of it. Lex, would you try that? A little cup of tea with some salt in it. Do you drink tea, Lex? Yeah, I do. It's Mm -hmm. also something that you can do with coffee as well. And it's not a lot. It's Mm -hmm. just a little pinch. Have you tried it? Uh, Yeah, so I've done it in coffee, and I I have done it in tea. Interesting. And? And you can't taste it, and it doesn't make it as bitter. Uh Uh-huh. I'll I'll raise the stakes here. As a kid, I used to watch my dad shake uh, salt in his beer. Yeah, I've seen that before as Mm -hmm. well. And is that for taste? I have no idea. I never tried it. I always thought it was like, what's he doing? So, salt. I mean, uh-huh. All right. I mean, there are there are a couple teas that are available here at the station. Mm-hmm. I won't name them. That I just are, are just you avoid. too much. Maybe I'll try one tomorrow and put a pinch a in pinch. there and see if it makes any difference. Well, that's true what Lexi says. I, I believe probably if it's, it's a little tiny bit, you can't taste it. So, Lex, you have there, it does not taste salty. No, not at all. You don't put if you're putting enough salt in your tea that you can taste it and it's right. salty, then you're putting too much in. Yeah, it's like a hard boiled egg. Yeah, huh. tea is also one of those things Tank. that it's not. You don't want to brew it too long because that's what makes it bitter. Mm. You want to put more tea into your cup and brew it for the same amount of time. Sounds mm-hmm. like Julia so, Child's in there. It, listen, listen to Lexi. <laughs> All right, we need to take a break. We're coming back. Looking forward to talking to our good friend, Alan Noble. He's the author of the brand new book that I just extolled from beginning to end on getting out of bed. So stay close. Monday edition, right home. Out of all the books that uh, I read in 2023, and of all the guests that we talked to on the show about their books, um, and not as many as there used to be prior to COVID, but man, we're still inundated uh, with books. Uh, my favorite one of the whole year was on getting out of bed. Really? Um, the Burden and Gift of Living by our next guest, Alan Noble. Alan is the author of that work. He's also the author of You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And he's going to be in Pittsburgh February 16th, 18th for the Jubilee Festival put on by the Coalition for Christian Outreach. Uh, Alan, we're so happy to have you back. So excited to be here. Our pleasure, Alan. So in getting out of bed, you say that... Um, that without fail, we know people, maybe ourselves included, who routinely struggle to get out of bed in the morning, and not just because they're tired. Yeah? Yeah. No. This is part of the premise of this book, is that suffering is a basic part of human life, and that we tend to hide that fact from ourselves and from other people. But uh, if you get to know people really well, as I have Uh, over the years, you'll discover more and more of them that have these struggles, this basic struggle to get out of the bed because life feels uh, unbearable. Mm -hmm. So the book, Alan, is not, you know, about the act of getting out of bed. (laughs) Although it does include it. Although it does include it. Uh, But to me, the heart of the book is just uh, facing the reality of suffering in life and kind of figuring out how to think about it. Or, you know, how you're going to place it in your uh, understanding of the world. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, getting out of bed is a metaphor for choosing to live. Um, Getting out of bed is the first thing that we do to embrace life each morning. And in the book, I argue that it's an act that requires a great deal of courage because you don't know what evil and suffering you're going to face each day. But, you know, you're going to face some. Some days it's uh, very little. Some days it's a lot that you didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. And um, 
part of what learning to live, and the Christian tradition has always understood this, part of what learning to live involves is learning how to suffer well, learning how to suffer for God, learning how to suffer in light of God's grace and in light of the fact that he's making all things new. Yeah. Years ago, I, I, you, um, I toured a lot with a, a theater troupe where we'd go into schools, and you would see this response all the time, Alan. The teacher would come up, and there'd be like, you know, an assembly of kids, of 300 kids, and the teacher would come out and go, good morning, everyone. How are you today? And in unison, I saw this a thousand times, in unison, the students would go, fine. <laughs> and you would hear a, a thousand kids go fine, and you know that's what that's what that's we're, indoctrination is what that is. The expected response is right. I mean, it doesn't matter if you know your world is being crushed to the outside world. When someone asks you how you are, you always going to say fine, yeah. Yeah, or or good. I mean, uh, fine is usually a sign that something's amiss. Uh, more often, when you ask you know somebody how they're doing, they say good, good, and um, they say it automatically. And you know, part of this is that um, you know we don't want to divulge our private secrets to just anyone who asks us how we're doing. So part of it is a, I think, a reasonable. Uh, hesitation to divulge personal information to you know people who are acquaintances, but on the other hand, um, I think a lot of us will do give that response even to people who care about us deeply and who sure. know our struggles, and that's where it becomes problematic. Is that we so flippantly reply, "Oh, I'm doing good," when actually we're carrying unbearable burdens, burdens that are not meant to be borne by ourselves. They're meant to be carried with other people. We're talking to Alan Noble. His newest work is called On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. Um, Alan, I ever since I was in college, I have this habit where I can't read books without uh, using a highlighter uh, to highlight oh. particular passages. And then each time I use a highlighter, I have to put a little flag at the top of the page so I can always find my highlights. And the yeah. joke among everyone who has been in my house is that on getting out of bed, <laughs> am I lying, John? It looks it's, like the Macy's Day Parade. <laughs> There's so it's, it's ridiculous. I, I would have been better off to just flag the pages that didn't mean anything to me. Um, but oh, I, wow. uh, but I do want to um, to read a, a passage for you here, and I think this oh. has some personal resonance for you. It says, "Your loved ones don't stop needing you just because you're suffering and stuck in your head or pinned to the bed. You can't know exactly how much freedom you have to fight back against the darkness, against your own mind, and choose to be present with those who need you. But you must try." Because you love them, you cannot ask them to suffer needlessly for you. You can't leave them alone while you lose yourself in despair. Wow. You know, yeah, you wrote that. <laughs> you, you forget. It's a long process of writing yeah. and editing. And, and I think I kind of needed to hear that today. So thank you for reminding me of what I wrote to myself. Yeah. Um, you know, this book came out of a, a, a personal personal experiences that I've had that I very intentionally choose not to divulge in the book because I didn't want it to be about me. Yeah. Uh, I wanted it to be about this basic human experience. Um, but, uh, it, you know, I wrote it as kind of a, a letter, really, I guess, to a, to a friend or maybe even in some ways to myself, 
uh, imagining, you know, sometimes it's helpful to, to when you're going through a difficult time to imagine if you had to give yourself a pep talk, what would you what yeah. would you say? You know, and in many ways, that's what this book is. It's uh, not a pep talk, but words of counsel and wisdom and encouragement and and sincerity to someone who who from someone who loves you. Yeah. Um, now, Alan, at the same time, you know, you said you, you didn't divulge a lot of your own situations in, in uh, on getting out of bed, but you did write, and this is an interesting analogy, that, you know, when you were th- in your 30s, you um, ruptured two discs in your neck. And so for a few months, you yeah. had to walk around with a, a neck brace on. And so there's an outward sign of someone, you know, physically in trouble. But, you, you know, you also write, well, it, with mental illness and depression and whatever the struggles are, none of us are wearing neck braces around. Uh, as helpful as that might be. Yeah, that, and that's part of the challenge is that people can be walking around with burdens that are just as debilitating as, a, as a, you know, wearing that neck brace was for me, or even more debilitating, significantly more debilitating. But uh, there's no outward manifestation. It just looks mm-hmm. like maybe a downcast expression, maybe, you know, somebody's taciturn, you know, but there's not really anything there. And part of, you know, part of the reason I bring up that uh, experience I had is it touches on the the fact that you don't ever get to know when you're struggling with a mental illness how much agency you have. One of the funny things that happened to me or interesting things that happened when I had this neck brace, this uh, I had spinal fusion, is I was not able to pick up my infant son. The doctor said, you can't lift anything above 10 pounds, mm-hmm. big boy. So... Uh, but there was a kind of relief in it. On the one hand, I felt like I'm not helping around the house. I'm not caring for my son because I'm not carrying him. But on the other hand, there was a kind of understanding between me and my wife and, and, and my own obligations to the family because I could know, gosh, me- medically speaking, I can't lift more than 10 pounds or my neck could hmm. break or something. I don't know what could happen. Something scary could happen. But with mental illness, you don't get these nice little lines that say you can't lift more than 10 emotional pounds, right? And that's part of what makes it challenging is that you have to, at the same time, give yourself grace and have compassion for yourself because God has compassion for you. And at the same time, advocate and fight and resist the the darkness. And that's a tough balance to hold. Yeah. Alan Noble's with us. We're talking about his work on getting out of bed, the burden and gift of living. Alan's in town uh, February 16th through the 18th as part of the Coalition for Christian Outreach, their Jubilee, which is held at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center, where he'll be speaking. But, uh, Alan, you also talk about um, uh, recommending mental health uh, services. Of course, I mean, that, that's mainstream in America today. The stigma is long since gone from that. But at the same time, you write that, you know, we've professionalized some of the basic life that used to be done by parents and mentors and grandparents and older people in the church, elders, pastors and teachers and other wise people. That's a necessary component of looking at your own mental health and caring for yourself. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we it, it is that we're professionalized. We, we have professionalized mental health services so that we no longer depend upon friends or counselors or wise mentors mm-hmm. to to be that source of encouragement, of uplift. And and what I want to do is I want to walk this fine line where I'm saying if you have mental struggles, please get professional help. There's amazing help available and you should pursue it. But on the other hand, I also want to say 
don't just view that as the outlet, the one way to fix your problems. Understand that we have always been, we were created to live in community. And so it's right, appropriate, and good for you to allow others to bear your burdens. If nothing else, let other people know that you're struggling and ask for prayer. Even if you can't divulge too much information or you're not comfortable yet, at least let them know, I'm going through something and I, I really need to be lifted up in prayer. And there's a lot of power in yeah. that. And there's there's a lot of power in, in knowing that you're not alone, that other people know that you're struggling and that and they're caring for you. Um, uh, but also, I think there's there's a lot of wisdom in, in just having wise spiritual counselors who can who can give you who can give you advice. I mean, there you know, there have been interesting times in my life where I've had uh, mental health professionals give me advice that pastors have already given me. Hmm. And, 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 and I've thought to myself, gosh, I should have listened to those pastors. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in, in, in listening to, to spiritual elders and, in, in, in counselors as well. Last question for you, Alan, cause I know you need to go teach a class. Um, I, Shortly after the uh, birth of my second daughter, I had a mental health crisis of my own, and uh, I'd never had a mental health crisis before, and I had a very hard time, first of all, admitting that I was having it, Um, but it was obvious to everyone around me, especially my husband and my baby and our our three-year-old, and it was a really dark time for me, and one of the things that I was really struggling with after being a career-minded person for all this time and all of a sudden having two little kids is the fact that I wasn't doing anything. I like I was completely useless and I just I, I could not get over that. So when I read uh, this, the, these sentences and I'm going to read again from your book called On Getting Out of Bed, quote, usefulness is the sole criterion for the word, the flesh or the devil. But you have no use value to God. You can't. There's nothing he needs. You can't cease being useful to God because you were never useful to begin with. That's not why he created you. And that's not why he continues to sustain your existence in the world. His creation of you was gratuitous, prodigal. He made you just because he loves you and for his own good pleasure. Every other reason to live demands that you remain useful. And one day your use will run out. That's so beautiful. Man, wow. that's good, Alan. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Is there a question there? Well, just... the, I mean, the question is, that's a big statement that you, that we have no use it value is. to God. Right, because we're like always driving forward. Yeah, i got to do this. And so it's at it such is. odds with how we look at our, our, our world and our daily life. I'm so glad that we had this talk today because I'm reminded of things that I've said and believe that I need to hear myself. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it is. Everything in society is telling us that usefulness is the most important criterion for deciding whether you're important. Um, And uh, it's this radical idea at at the center of our faith that we're not useful to God. And at first, that sounds offensive, like, ah, I'm not useful to God, but we have to rethink the way we've been taught. Uh, we have been taught that usefulness is the only thing that matters, but, but God's creation of us is, as I say, gratuitous. It's an act of pure love and grace, and that's radical. And that means that when we get to positions where we are helpless, where we are stuck in bed, where we are unable to work, where we're whatever, we are still loved and known and cherished by God. And that is a peace that we can rest in. 
I'm into that. Alan, you're going to be in Pittsburgh. Talk about the Jubilee Conference, and what are you going to be doing there? Um, writing and reading is a profession. So I'm oh, going to great. be talking about this book, Good. and I'm also going to be talking about uh, my previous book, uh, You Are Not Your Own. So Fabulous. Uh, lots of interesting things. Excited to be there. Well, we look forward to coming down and seeing uh, Alan as well as you speak and talk. That's very good. Thank you. Our pleasure. Alan Noble on Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. It's a slim volume, but as you hear, it is packed with great wisdom and godliness. Alan Noble. So you, you hang out with your coworkers all week long, right? You're in the office, you're doing your thing, whatever. But then, of course, you, you want to socialize with your coworkers, right? Sure. Which is what I did with Kath and a group of friends on Saturday night at her house mm-hmm. where it was pierogi palooza. Yes. Holy was. smokes. That was fabulous. Mm. The pierogies. Okay, uh, run down the menu. Okay, so we had a sauerkraut pierogi uh Cottage cheese, yeah. potato and cheese, jalapeno and cheese. Mm. Those were the four varieties that I got. And I love all of them. Yes. I uh, really do. I did. Yeah. My favorite is sauerkraut, which mm. is ironic because I do not like sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. It's not something I would ever eat. But for some reason, inside a pierogi, it is the best. Bomb. Sure was. So then there was sour cream and or Delicious applesauce. Marburger Farm Dairy, best sour cream on earth. Yeah. Outstanding. Also, I, I did make applesauce yeah. on Friday. And so it's imperative that it sits in the refrigerator at least 24 hours. I'm telling you, I wish that I could have eaten more because if I could have, I mm. would have. I was so filled. And you made the white bean chili. Oh, right. Winter Holy white chili. smokes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh, Uncle Wayne's uh, winter white chili. Well, it was really From just Beth beautiful. Moore. Yeah. I mean, seriously, is it... The best thing in the world is <laughs> is to hang out with a group of friends you've had long history yep. with and just talk yep. and laugh and dish and just go through. I, I yep. loved it so much. We were there a long time. We really were. We really were. Then just... we had cookies. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We had cookies. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So speaking of pierogies, the last time we were on the uh, Gateway Clipper Cruise. They had them and they were good. They were. And, and you saying that was like, Really? You gave it your seal of approval. You, the Polish girl. Listen, I'm telling you. You know, last time we were on the uh, Gateway Clipper cruise, it was for pastors, mm-hmm. and it was during the day. But we have one coming up next Friday already that is in the evening, and it's in winter, and it's going to be fabulous. It's a night out on the Allegheny, the Mon, and the Ohio. A great dinner, fabulous views of the city, and a wonderful community of Word FM listeners. John and I are hosting the Valentine Dinner Cruise for Word FM. It's not happening on February 14th, because as I always say, that's amateur hour. Mm. But February 16th, bring whoever you want. Friday evening. Yeah, you can bring your Valentine, or you can bring your parents, you can bring your kids, you can bring your small group from church, whatever you want to do. But tickets are on sale now, and they are going fast. So please, if you're interested in doing this, we would love to have you. We'd love to meet you. Sit down and talk. Get your tickets at wordfm.com. That's right. And again, fairly inexpensive for a really special night out. In fact, if you booked the same cruise, outside of the Word FM dinner. Like went direct to Gateway Clipper. You'd pay a lot more. A lot more. So you're saving money. Mm-hmm. You're getting a beautiful view of the city, a wonderful night out, and John and I would be happy to say hi. Very nice. Okay, uh, Valentine's Dinner Cruise once more <laughs> Friday evening, next Friday, the 16th at wordfm.com. We hope to see you there. I don't know what I'm wearing. 
I usually try to to wear some kind of nautical theme. <laughs> right. Right. I don't. I think that's not going to happen this time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think I'm out. Well. <laughs> Unless you wore, like, you know, like an Eskimo coat. You know what? The weather, look, it's going to be so gorgeous here. Temperatures maybe, I won't, maybe I won't even need a coat. I don't think so. Because when we were out there, it wasn't cold on no, the ship. it no. really wasn't. Lovely. So, FordFM.com. Join us next Friday. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, just before the break, uh, we were talking about going to Cass House for dinner on Saturday night, where we were feted with the, uh, the authentic pierogi, mm. which was outstanding. But then, uh, over dessert, Kath pulls out like these... Incredible homemade cookies. Well, because they were uh, uh, frozen from Christmas. It wasn't like I made cookies for you guys. Right. I mean, as much as I love you, I uh, didn't do that. Over Christmas, you made how many dozen cookies? Something like 52 or 54 or something. <sighs> it was a lot. Okay, so then we go to, to the news break. Kath walks in at the top of the hour with a plate of the aforementioned cookies. One plate for me, one plate for Lexi. That's right. Life is good here at Word FM, is it not? Lex, have you dipped in? Mm-hmm. I haven't, but mm-hmm. I'm, like, salivating. They smell so good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so what do we have here on this uh, platter? Uh, okay, so we've got uh, the Snickerdoodle. Mm-hmm. We've got the Orange Twist. Yeah. The Mochaccino. Mm-hmm. The Chocolate Peppermint. The uh, Coconut Lime. Mm. Uh, flat Molasses. Mm-hmm. And Cranberry Oatmeal. Dang, that is sweet. Okay, I'm, I haven't don't, eaten. Don't do the Chocolate Peppermint because you don't like that. I'm yeah, that's co- good. That's coconut lime. Yeah, yeah, I haven't done this. I okay. missed this on the other night. Oh, yeah. Because I know this came up and I was like, oh, I missed Yeah, that's that. a new one. I never uh, made that before. Uh, it's it's too flat. Mm-hmm. But I'll work on it next year. Mm-hmm. But it's still tasty. Oh, it's very tasty. It wow. Is, isn't that tasty? Mm-hmm. What is the description? What did you say? Coconut lime. Oh, it is. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Wow. I like it. the coconut on top. There's mm-hmm. like a little glaze on top, lime mm-hmm. glaze, and there's actual coconut. So there's coconut in it and uh-huh. on it, and I like it. Mm. Yeah. So next year I'm going to make it and keep the butter from being... For, keep Start with colder butter. Oh, yeah. I'm so disappointed. Are you with the flatness of it? <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. Delish. Thanks, Kath. Mm-hmm. Wow. Lex, what are, you, what are you going for mm-hmm. there now, friend? Mm-hmm. I'm eating the one you just described. The it's coconut so delicious. Oh, the same thing. Yeah. Because yeah, how could you pass out? Oh, the coconut's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't love a homemade cookie? They're comforting. Mm. There's something comforting about the homemade cookie that you can't so get delicious. from the Oreo oh. or the Chips Ahoy. Mm. It's delicious. Or the Milan, Mint Milano, wow. whatever it no, is. No. There is just something. And what's comforting about them is that they're a little weird looking. You know yeah, what I mean? They're not perfect. They're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're I, homemade. Yeah. So I do like Did that. you have a cookie jar, cookie jar in your house growing up? Never. No, what? my mom never my mom never baked a thing. Never. In her whole life. Oh, man. Never. She never, ever baked. Well, my mom was like you. She would crank out like uh, our standard cookies, our standard, my mom's standard cookies were the chocolate chip. Which is delicious. And the peanut butter. Just plain peanut butter cookies. Yeah. Is that a great thing? See, I don't make either one of those. Oh, those are like the, the go-to. And they would appear... Often, like every other week, we had mm. those. We weren't buying like homemade cookies. My mom was baking those for all of us. So there was a cookie jar as well, which was outstanding. We have a cookie jar. My wife has her childhood cookie jar at our house. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 
it's it's there's rarely any cookies in there. Yeah. Because you know, as soon as they are, they're going to disappear. Right. And of course, you know, you want to fit in your pants. Yeah. Right. You really do want to. That's fit what in your elastics pants. for. Anyway, okay. Speaking of food, um, you know, my family, I, I I owe my allegiance to the H. J. Hines Company. Because that is your birthright. Yeah, my parents met there. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for the H.J. Heinz company, I wouldn't be right, here. Right, right. Anyway, uh, so Heinz has launched uh, what they're calling an emotional support ketchup bottle. Yeah, this is weird, but this this has like kind of roots in my family because my sister, <laughs> one of my sisters, she'll come to visit like for a meal. She'll bring her own bottle of Heinz ketchup. Stop she it. She travels with it. Like... <laughs> She pulls it out of her purse, and I, like she does this all the time. And I go, really? Because, she go, because you don't have enough, or she doesn't like the kind you have? No, no. She knows that I'm going to have Heinz. She's like, well, I'm always afraid you're, you're going to run out. Like So she's bringing back up. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So here's the deal. Uh, uh, this is uh, from our friends at WPXI. If you've ever wanted to carry around a bottle of ketchup for comfort, Which, like my sister, right. Heinz has uh, your solution. In a nod toward, quote, emotional support water bottles, the company has launched a new Heinz emotional support ketchup bottle. The product features a ketchup bottle, a sticker pack, and a strap to easily carry it around. Quote, in case of emergency, crisis, anxiety, boredom, major life events, dinner with friends or barbecue, with that one weird uncle who doesn't believe in condiments or right. Heinz, right, bring cool. us with you, the product says. Mm-hmm. So you can buy it, I guess, uh, where? They don't say where you can buy it, but I would imagine, does Heinz have a website? I'm sure they have a website. Right. Yes. The emotional support ketchup bottle at Heinz. Yeah, I'm looking at this. It's it's pretty funny. It has like a little, um, kind of the same uh, shoulder strap that you would find on a lightweight suitcase they <laughs> right. have here, or a camera you, strap or something. Right. Yeah. You you strap it right onto your ketchup okay, bottle. Okay. I want to digress here because now I'm using this this kind of ketchup bottle, the large plastic bottle. Yeah. You as a purist, you you will not use the plastic bottle. Only glass. Only glass. And what's strange, and my family mocks me for this, and you know what? They're right, and I don't care, which is that when I, if, if we have somebody in the family buys this, the plastic version, yeah. I'll squeeze it into the glass bottle. Oh, that's okay. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Because I, the glass bottle is where it's at. Right, right. Because glass is better. How many times have we talked in the last month about how the earth is drowning in plastic? Mm-hmm. Do we need more plastic? No, we don't. Right. I think we're fine with glass. Anyway, and it's just it makes you feel like this is a little more of a solid thing. Yeah. Well, you have some confidence there. Now, listen, I, I worked when I was a kid. I worked in a, a local restaurant where the owner would fill up the aforementioned glass Heinz bottles with an off-brand of ketchup, like like fooling the the customers into thinking this was Heinz because it was cheaper for them. That's all. That so beware is, of the. That is such a demerit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But people who know Heinz ketchup would they realize would right, right away. away that that's not Heinz What's ketchup. What's this whole thing? Yeah, right? like yeah. we don't know. Anticipation. Okay, we we'll take a quick break. We come back. Uh, Pastor uh, Jason Chiron joins us. It's been a while since Jason has joined us. We always enjoy this conversation. He's an Orthodox. Nope. No. He's a Catholic mm-hmm. priest Ukrainian who's married Catholic. with, like, nine kids? Eight. Okay, somewhere in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't get his religion right or his kids right. But <laughs> anyway, he's next. Stay with us.
Well, Cookies have invaded the Word FM studio. Kath has um, shared her bounty with us, the 52 uh, dozen cookies that she cooked. I didn't bring in she, all of them. No. Most of them are gone. But there's a nice big plate here that I've been enjoying, and Lex has a plate in, in her studio. Jason Sharon is back with us. Jason's been a regular guest of ours over the many, many years we've done the show. And uh, Jason, welcome back to the show. Um, you yourself, um, a married priest, which is, uh, for a lot of people listening, an oxymoron. Yeah, um, you know the early early church ordained married men to the uh, to the episcopacy to the uh, priesthood, and uh, the Eastern Orthodox and the Eastern Catholic churches uh, still maintain that discipline. It's not a teaching of the church; it's just a discipline. Yes, and uh, yeah. Holy Trinity Ukrainian Catholic Church in Carnegie. So I, I put the uh, plates of cookies before you, and uh, you said I, you're in training. I've been training, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've been yeah. training for what? Yeah. So we have uh, uh, a few weeks before Lent when uh, Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholics, we have these uh, pre Lenten Sundays when we're slowly weaning ourselves off of these uh, mm-hmm. lovely de- mm. delectables that uh, mm-hmm. you sit know, before you that uh, I've thrown in your face <laughs> yeah, molasses uh, cookies and whatnot. So yeah, I'm in I'm in that period now, and uh, although the law says I can eat them uh, and devour them, mm-hmm. delight in them, I uh, I'm trying to, uh, to to not do that. Right. Okay. So fasting is coming. So what does that look like for you? Um, as, I mean, Ash Wednesday is almost on our doorstep. Will it go through the entirety of Lent for you? Yeah. So we, we go without um, uh, meat, dairy, um, for uh, for the entirety of, of the fast, uh, the, all of the days. Um, and it's, uh, it's connected to the Last Judgment, believe it or not. Uh, the reading that we have uh, in our church on uh, this past Sunday uh, relates to that because the Gospel reading pertains to uh, Matthew 25, the judgment between the sheep, the sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but before that, like five minutes before that, we read from um, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he speaks about uh, sacrifice or meat that's been sacrificed to um, you know to to pagan uh, mm-hmm. gods, so to speak, who aren't really gods. But mm-hmm. um, and uh, he won't eat of it because he doesn't want to harm the conscience of another. Hmm. And they're connected. They're connected because... Wait, let me break in and say, even though he says he can. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. He, he has the freedom to. Right. But chooses not to. Right. And then he he uses that word. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Yeah. And uh, that that's connected to, you know, judgment. Uh, at the end, we either choose to, you know, feed the hungry, visit the imprisoned, yes. or we choose not to do it. You know, sins of omission that we, we see with the goats. They they go to hell not because they do egregious things, but because they simply don't do the good that God desires them to do. Yes. Um, but it also relates to this question of freedom also relates to, uh, you know, food, because this is the practice round is we're controlling uh, what goes into our mouth. And what goes out of our mouth, you know, James mm-hmm. 1, um, you know, the words that can be like a spark that sets a whole forest on fire. So uh, these these weeks leading up to Lent are uh, training rounds. You think of like Rocky uh, preparing for his, his mm-hmm. uh, big fight, you know, and he's, he's prepping for like a long time before the big fight against uh, Apollo. What was his Creed. name? Creed. Apollo Creed, who just mm-hmm. passed away, the right. actor, yeah. And uh, that's what this time of year is. It's uh, really intense preparation so that we're free. Uh, we have control over our desires, so that uh, we no longer desire the things of the flesh, the you know the 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 lust of the eyes, uh, the pride of this world, 
uh, so that when the opportunity presents itself uh, to you know visit the sick or visit the imprisoned, uh, we've already interiorly disposed ourselves uh, to to attach ourselves to the things of God and not the things of this world. And it begins with the basic elementary things of the food that goes in our mouth and the words that come out of it. Mm. So these things that are uh, surround us, these, these are barriers, right, to our walk with God. Well, they, they, they can be... Um, they can be like it's like rocks. You can use rocks and and make a, a an edifice out of rocks and help you get up to a higher level, or you can also trip over rocks on the path. You know, so these things uh, they're not uh, barriers to God in themselves. Um, uh, they can be used for good, but they can potentially also, as you just said, uh, be barriers if we uh, use them in a disordered way. It's hard to sacrifice stuff, isn't it? Uh, it's if you don't have the great big picture in mind. Yeah, yes, it really is. Yeah. It really is. So it is a discipline, um, and you and it's know, it's not a diet. It's not a diet, no. right? It's 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 showing that that we have some degree of mastery over our yeah you know, over our inclinations. Yeah. So uh, the like the monks. Like a th- 1,500 years ago, they called this, you know, eschesis, the big fancy word. A football coach will call it skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, today we would call it discipline of the soul, you know. And uh, it, I like to use the example of, well, for football fans, if they're listening, you know, the game between the Detroit Lions and the 49ers, mm-hmm. it was like it seemed that I turned it off like, oh, well, right, it's this over. is over. It's over, you know. And uh, they both wanted to win. You know, they both have a great goal. They want to win the game. But uh, the the tactics or the the skills of the the lions fell apart, and uh, they didn't achieve their goal. But the the skills of the Forty ers they endured. They endured, and they they achieved their goal. And it's the same with uh, us followers of Christ. Is we all hopefully uh, have the same goal. We all want to get to heaven, but that's not the ticket. Just I desire to get to heaven. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. We need to have the skills, the discipline, the spiritual mm-hmm. discipline uh, to to control our lustful. Uh, angry, uh, petulant heart. Mm-hmm. And that that skill is acquired through uh, training the mouth with Good. what goes in and out. So here you are, you're in the training process right now, but then once Lent begins, talk about that journey. Um, when you shut that off, right, you're used to eating meat, enjoying dairy. When you turn away from that, yeah. is there a period of unsettledness or, oh, yeah. and you anxious? And, and then when does that slip away? Take us on that little journey. Oh, well, it, it's death. It's a, it's a feeling of kind of death, you know, death to self, uh, death to your wants, death to your desires. Uh, so those first three days are really uh, tough because uh, some of us do the black fast, like, like no, nothing. You might have a glass of water. Three days. Yeah. Yeah, so just just uh, so like is that Christ Ash in Wednesday desert. and the two days after? Or? Well, see, we, we begin uh, people begin Ash Wednesday. We begin actually the Monday, two days before on the oh, Monday. Okay, yeah. okay, and um, so that's when it begins a black fast. Yeah, black fast like Christ in the desert. Now some some have done it for the you know the whole fast, and that that's that's phenomenal. Uh, having water and. Uh, um, How is that even possible? I, I don't know. It, I've, I've heard that it's been done. I'm, I'm, scriptures speak about Christ doing it, and yes. he was fully human, you know, uh, and fully divine. Yes. So uh, so that's, yeah, that's what we do. So the first part, the first few days, I mean, your body, you're at war with your members mm-hmm. because they want to be served. Mm-hmm. And this is, you're breaking in the wild stallion, saying, no, 
uh, you serve the needs of my soul. Mm. Man um, does not live by bread alone. Right. And so right. three days, nothing but water. Yeah, and even that in, in great moderation, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the third day, there's an awakening that happens. And th- this is what, like, Buddhist monks and mm-hmm. non-Christians, they'll speak about this because it's not like we have a copyright on spiritual sure. experiences, right? right. And uh, they'll speak about that, and they're right. Uh, and the early monks uh, in the desert, they, they spoke about this, these spiritual experiences. And these spiritual experiences are around us, and we, we curtain them off by our... our um, fixation on the flesh, fixation on food, comfort and all that. But once you strip away, you know, those idols, all of a sudden the mind becomes sensitive and alert and you begin to perceive things better. Your my mind at least works better after that by the third day. Mm-hmm. I feel light. Mm-hmm. I, day four. Yeah, yeah. I feel light. I feel nimble, um, more alert, mm-hmm. uh, less droggy, you know. Uh, so that's what it's like. You ask what it's like. There's death. But then by, like, uh, the fourth day, there's life. Interesting. Lazarus is coming out of the tomb. Now, those first three days, of course, you're married with kids. Yeah. What's your home life like? I just I just lock myself in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Does your family fast as well? Well, yeah, yeah. Not as not – they're, they're younger, you know, uh, not as, as strictly. Severe, yeah. But uh, – uh, yeah, I mean that that's the that's the the big challenge and I think there's more sanctity and holiness in, among God's people when they're living in the world and doing this yeah. than living in a monastery where and everybody's doing where it. everyone's doing it, you know? And so it's tough when you're um you've had a long day, come down, I'm going to have you know supper with the family and the kids are having what they like to have, you know, and you're sitting there and you've got like a glass of water. You know, so yeah, that that social aspect of it, uh, that's tough. It, that's tough. Yeah, um, but you know, it is uh, really a lesson in the Christian life when kids see mom and dad taking up the cross of Christ uh, to do to do battle against Satan, and he's dad or mom is doing battle with Satan around the family table with us. And uh, my 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 wife tells me what her great grandfather would do during the fast in Ukraine, you know, it was kind of handed down through the family, the things he would do, just an ordinary farmer, and he was nobody special, but he would uh, do these really beautiful acts of self-denial uh, so that he could understand his his great love, like Jesus. Like what? what? What did he do? Well, he, he loved to, like, this is back in like the 50s, you know, he loved to smoke, you know, um, and then um, that was, maybe he had a little bit too much of an attachment to it. Yeah. Lent began, and it was not about his comfort. He would quit cold turkey. Really? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for, for those of your listeners who know what a, a good cigarette is like or a good cigar or, or what have you, uh, to give it up for a few days is a struggle. But for, you know, 40 days, uh, and if, you, if you're doing the full fast as the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholics do, it's like 50 Uh then that, that's that's really commendable, mm-hmm. you know. And people see that and they think, "Wow!" So there is a power in him that is greater than the power for the the drive for food or sex mm-hmm. or comfort. Yeah. And then people begin to think, 
what's this life of faith that's going on inside of his heart? I want to. I want some of that. That's really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, we're talking with Pastor Jason Cherone, Holy Trinity Catholic Church in the Carnegie neighborhood. We need to take a break. Yeah. Uh, let's step away, and then when we come back, I want to ask you, Jason, about some of the particulars about fasting, because fasting to me is is a mystery. Um, and so let's talk about that. It's a Monday mm-hmm. edition, of the ride home. being with us. We're talking with Pastor Jason Sharon. Father Sharon is joining us from Holy Trinity Ukrainian Catholic Church in the Carnegie neighborhood here in the city of Pittsburgh. We've been talking about fasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jace, I was fasting uh, a few months ago uh, to be able to pray about a particular issue. And um, this is what I noticed while I was doing it. And I did it for, for two weeks. Um, not completely. It was during daylight hours, but I did it for two weeks. And I, I very much agree with what you said in our last segment, where after a few days, it, you, I developed a sense of acuity about what I was praying that I didn't have before I started. Um, but another thing that happened is that I started trying to analyze what I was doing. And I was thinking, okay, so what am I thought, am I trying to convince God of something? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, am I trying to show him that I'm serious about it, right? Or am I trying to discipline myself like you were talking about, right? At which point that seemed self-centered when I was trying to pray about something. Anyway, there's so many thoughts that come into your head about the actual mechanism of the practice. Do you think about that when you're fasting? Um, that's a, that's a great, a great question. Yeah, I do think about that, uh, at, at one level. Um, but at a certain point when, when fasting really starts doing what it's supposed to do, um, it, it strips away, uh, our undue attachment to the, the things of this world. Um, so I, I think initially that happens, but, uh, at, at the next level, um, the the fasting, the effects of the fasting begin to kick in, mm-hmm. and um, in comes a certain clarity. And it's just it's just God. All that matters mm-hmm. is God, um, and that then fasting has accomplished its its proper end. Right, yeah. so, and so people are thinking, that's crazy. Why would I do this? Uh, yeah, and I've, that doesn't make any sense to me. Can you talk about the about giving di- a fast, giving up food? Yeah, or yeah. Ju- or just like all that matters is God. Mm-hmm. So. But there's a difference in talking about it and actually being a part of it. Do you agree with that? Actually doing it is different than us having a conversation. Oh, about yeah. It. The reality of it is just different. Oh, talk is cheap, right? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like evangelism. It's great to talk about evangelism. Yeah, right, right. But then once you get out into the street and you're talking to people, it's a different experience, yeah. you know, or talking about falling in love and then falling in love, different experience. So, uh, you know, fasting, talking about it theoretically, yeah, you're freed. Interior, interiorly, you're disposed uh, to live the life of the angels, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That is adoration praising god um but when you're in the middle of the initial stages of it there's everything is is pulling you back from it mm-hmm. you know don't do this the demons are terrified of it because uh their hold over you is weakened mm-hmm. uh so you're you're missing out on being a good dad or you're you're not being a good friend you know uh so that that initial uh phase of it is is uh, uh is a struggle yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so so chase this used to be 
probably for centuries, a, a common spiritual practice, yeah. which has quickly faded away from the modern times. Right. No one has a copyright on it. I mean, this is something shared among all religions. Muslims, you know, they fast. Uh, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, we all fast. But for some reason in the past century, we Christians have really allowed that to kind of go by the wayside. And the, di- the diet gurus have picked it up. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the other religions, they continue with it. But uh, if you look at the, uh, the writing in, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, this is something common to our family. It doesn't matter if you're Orthodox or Catholic or, or Evangelical. It doesn't matter. Just read the scriptures. You know, Acts. In the Acts, they, they were praying and fasting. You read like with uh, the prophetess Anna in Luke chapter 2, when the child Jesus is brought into the temple. She spent her days in the temple, what does it say? Praying and fasting. Mm-hmm. And you see this with uh, Elijah. What does Elijah do? He fasts. What does Moses and uh, uh, what does Moses do? He fasts. You look at Jesus. Obviously, the great ex, uh, uh, exemplar for us is you know the forty days fasting. And you're beginning of Mark's gospel before he he begins his great mission. He does what first? He goes out and he fasts. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it, that's just the standard that we're to follow. And uh, we can't you know we can't do anything about our old, the, the, our generation not doing it. But we can do something about us individually saying you know what. This is a part of my life that I can control, what goes into my mouth, and I'm going to use that for the glory of God. Amen. So observationally, as you're in this process, now you talked about you know the, the dark fast, the initial three days, then you go on this Lenten journey. Do you see the change in your relationship with our Lord, the change in the relationship with your family, your immediate family and your church family, your thought process, your dream life, Mm. all those things, do they alter? You see that? You're able to comment on that to yourself? Well, honestly, I mean, initially I'm very grumpy. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you know, I I, I'll be that. very honest. Yeah, my, my, if my wife's listening, she's like, "Oh yeah." Uh, so, I'm, <laughs> oh yeah, the husband's fasting. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So then, then it gets into that now. But this is good because it forces you to get to that point that John Chrysostom says is this is about the real. The, the fast is about fasting from sin, the passions. So if you are fasting from food, but you're lashing out at your mm-hmm. wife. Then what's the point? What's the point? So this forces you to recognize the real monster in your life. And it's not excessive food so much as it is your excessive indulgence in passion. Like you give in to that passion of anger. And so now you see, okay, physically, I see that food has control over me, undue sway. But now that that's taken from me, I see that there's even something else that has undue sway over me, and it is my pride or my my my, my lust or my gluttony. Mm-hmm. And if those aren't aren't fed, then I just I lash out at the people around me. This is sin at work in my members. Saint Paul speaks about that, and um, so so that that that's a real that's an eye opening experience. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one one last thing is that it's just um, God doesn't need, you know, your fast. It doesn't He doesn't need that. We need that. Yeah, mm-hmm. to draw us closer. We've been talking about fasting, and I really appreciate your honesty about that, Jace. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Father Jason Cherone, Holy Trinity Ukrainian Catholic Church in Carnegie. Take a minute before you leave us, Jason, talk about what's happening at your church and what people can expect during the Lenten season. Saving souls and changing the world, and we do that by putting first things first, which is giving God all glory, honor, and praise, and everything uh, flows from that. So that's what we concentrate on is making sure our worship of uh, God, one in the Holy Trinity, is uh, filled with praise and all the majesty that's due 
uh, his glorious name. Amen and amen. 11 o'clock, Sundays. 11 o'clock, Sundays. Very nice. Holy Trinity Ukrainian Catholic Church in the Carnegie neighborhood. Father Sharon, thank you so much. All right. God bless you all. And you as well. Remember the phrase, fine dining. (laughs) You don't hear that anymore, do you? There are not many places where you would go to. You'd go to a very nice restaurant and have an excellent meal and be be prepared to pay accordingly. But you could wear jeans. Yes. It would not be called fine dining. I remember working as a kid, as a busboy at Polize. Now, Polize wasn't necessarily fine dining, but it was a linen tablecloth kind of place. And the mm-hmm. dining room was packed, and people went there with a particular mindset, right? It and, was lifted. And a particular type of, um, like, they, you carried yourself differently. Sure you did. If you were going to a fine dining restaurant. I mean, the men wore, at the minimum, a sport coat. Right. A lot of people wore suits. The women wore dresses. Yep. You know, it was... Just a step up. Now, of course, everything's changed. And especially since COVID, I mean, everything's totally changed. We live in a deeply relaxed society, for better or worse. So I saw a piece uh, in The Guardian, How to Eat Now, 16 Rules of Modern Dining from Dress Codes to Dogs. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first one that they discuss, that The Guardian discusses, is something that you and I and a group of friends uh were involved in last weekend. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So uh, we showed up at a restaurant downtown mm-hmm. that was popular, and we were hoping to walk in because we were there early. It was like four o'clock. Saturday or afternoon. Yeah. It was, and you think Saturday afternoon downtown, pretty easy. Right. Four o'clock. There was something going on at the convention center. Right. So the place was inundated. Completely inundated. So they said, you can wait, but it's going to be three hours. <laughs> Okay. So so there were already a line of people waiting. Right. So our question was, are we going to get in line? Well, I mean, we were there with eight people. We're not going right. to wait for three hours. So we abandoned that line, drove to the suburbs where they said, you can wait, but it's going to be an hour. Right. So we waited in that line. I mean. And to be honest, the line was less than an hour. It was. It was. And we ended up having a terrific dinner. An excellent dinner. But the question is, how much do you, like, would you ever wait in line to go into a restaurant? Because the in the old days, and still in some finer places, there is a reservation. Right. Right. But a lot of these uh, newer restaurants are first come, first serve. So I got to be honest. I don't like that. I, I don't like that. And if it's, there were a group of us there. Fine. So we, w- the hour wait, I thought, well, we're all going to be chatting. It's going to be fine. If it was just my husband and I, I don't, we're not waiting an hour. No, especially if it's a nice place and you are dressed for the occasion, like it's a special night out. Yeah, I'm not doing anniversary that. or a birthday or something, right? You're not going to hang out in the lobby of a place for an hour. An or hour stand outside. No. What, okay. Next question. Mm-hmm. Dogs. Are dogs allowed in the dining room? Okay, you're the dog guy. I, I've never had a dog. No, I love me a dog. and uh, I'd go out of my way to pet a dog to be next to a dog. However, sitting down in a restaurant, I don't care if it, the dog is the Prince of Sheba. I don't want to sit in a restaurant next to a dog. Really? Just, no. So, really? For no reason? I just don't want to. It seems... And, and, you know, I, I know it's weird because, you know, uh, when I'm eating dinner with my family... There's a dog there. <laughs> next to me. <laughs> But I'm not paying a hundred bucks at a restaurant to have somebody I don't know and their dog next to me. Right? Okay, what if you were eating outside? Does that change things? 
I guess a little bit. It puts a little bit of a different spin on it. Sure. But, dogs, but you still don't like it. No, because dogs are unpredictable. And what you think is cool behavior for your dog is not necessarily good behavior for my dog. Right. So I'm going to spend, again, this kind of money to have some stranger's dog next to me when I don't know what can happen. No, I'm not I think you're that. right about that. And I, like I said, I'm not, I don't have a dog and I love dogs. So I'm always happy to see dogs in public. But I think at a restaurant, you're right about that. Yeah. Okay. Th- this happened uh, when I worked as a, as a server in New York City. This would happen. You'd be at a, a, a fine place and people would show up for a party with their own birthday cake. What? Oh, like. Yeah, sure. Like somebody, you know, went, okay. like they made, like Nana made a birthday cake or they went so to. So it's BYOC. Right. You bring your beautiful birthday cake. Well, more often than not, the places that I worked in, there was a cake charge. Yeah, for cutting. Right. Now you're bringing food in. Well, I'm going to put a little, you know, tax on top of that. Right. People would get hot about that. Like, I, I don't think there's, that to me is just poor behavior. Bringing your own food. Bringing in. your own food into a restaurant. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm on both sides of this because I get it. It's your own. This is Nana's special recipe. Okay, but then you have to clear that with the restaurant before you show. I would hope so. And and, and to have a you know a cake charge means that this happens frequently. Yeah, it must happen frequently. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about um, phones in the dining room? So. We, uh, the uh, the same night that we were out with friends, uh, we were sitting next to a couple (laughs) who truly, from the beginning of the dinner time to the end of the dinner time, these two people did not speak. It was sad. They sat at the same table and did not speak. Now, here's what's interesting is they weren't on their phones. No. They were just silent. Most of the time, when people are not talking at the table, it's because they're on their phones. Right. How do you feel about phones in the dining room? It doesn't bother me. If you're the guy who wants to be on your phone, if you're scrolling while you're eating, whatever. It's not good. As long as you're not playing you know, videos or something like that that I have to overhear, right? You're sharing space. It's a public space. So, so don't intrude on my public space with your stuff. That's all I'm asking, whether it's a dog or a YouTube video or whatnot. And I get it. You know, it's a communal thing, but there has to be a line drawn. What about the perspective of the restaurateur? So if you're going to, you know, some kind of, you know, Yinzer place, not a big deal. But if we're talking about fine dining, uh, several chefs were asked about this for this article in The Guardian. And I thought this was interesting. They said, um, I could I would really like for when people come into my restaurant to put their phones away. Right. But if someone big wants to ban phones, I'll eventually jump on that bandwagon when it's safe. So he doesn't want to be the person to do it. Sure. But if other places start doing it, he'll gladly do it because he doesn't like it. Well, again, you know, here we are. This is America. People do what they want to do, right? I mean, yep. the sense That's, of entitlement is so yeah, off the charts. Yeah, I know, and so, so we're just used to bad behavior. Well, if you can imagine, you know, going into a place, again, you're not going into a hot dog uh, shop, but you're going to go in and you're going to, you know, lay down some money for a special event, and there's a sign there, you know, at the Mater D station that says, no phones, people are going to get hot, and they're going to respond against that. They're going to purposely say, you can't tell me what to do with my phone, and so they're going to you know, pull their phone out regardless. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Then some, the poor waiter or someone has got to go and say, excuse me, sir, no phones, please. And then all of a sudden, a firestorm erupts in the, in the restaurant. I don't know. Choose your battles. I know. I, I, I'm not saying that's a battle. And clearly, it's a battle he doesn't want to choose. 
But if somebody else started it, he'd right. be happy to jump on because, the Because, I mean, if, if a place would have that, then there have been, you know, phone disruptions in the room, right? People are watching all manner of stuff right. on their phones. So all of a sudden you're pulling out and someone's watching some weird stuff and that infects the, the whole tone of the room. Of course, you're going to go, stop it. I'm going to do I'm going to ban this. What about uh, kids under 12? <sighs> I, I'm fine with it. Okay. You, I mean, if you bring a child into a restaurant, you would hope that the child and the parents were so inclined not to let the kid, you know, wander around the dining room and not to act out in public and to be polite and to learn good, you know, skills at the table. Yeah, that's fine. But again. But if there is a group of bad kids right, and, and they're then, running around. And they ruin everybody's and then, experience. Right, and right. then someone complains and then, you know, that's the, I mean, every time you go out in public, of course, we all know this, you're kind of, you know, it's a gamble. Will everyone sort of follow the unwritten or the written codes of, of decorum and behavior so that everyone can uh, get along well and have an enjoyable time? Is that a possibility? I'd say more often than not, yes, it is. But then there's always the coconut. Okay, what about this? I was out with a friend for dinner last week um, at a wonderful place that I'll talk about another time. Uh, but we were there for a long time. Mm, how long? So we're reading a book together, the two of us. Yeah. So we ordered an appetizer. We had dinner. Mm-hmm. We had coffee after. And then we started discussing the book. We were there more than two hours. Well, what do you think about that? I'm we might have been that. there two and a half hours. I'm fine with that because you're gonna you're spending money. We, we spent a lot of. You're money. not as though you're sitting down and having a dessert and then you're going to spend three right. hours there. Right. The only problem with that is, of course, you know, being a former server, is that you know you prohibit somebody else from sitting right. in that table so the table doesn't turn over. Right. So the server gets blocked out of you know additional revenue. Right. And so does the so does the restaurant. Right. But if you're going, you know, appetizer, entree, dessert. Who am I to say you got to get out of here unless you're, you know, setting what up camp? About, okay, so what about a restaurant manager who comes and asks you to leave? I don't like that. I wouldn't. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. What? Has that never happened to you? Never. Oh, that's happened to me several times. What? Yes, it's happened to me several Vacate times. the premises? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. We I need, wouldn't go I'm back. sorry. We need to ask you to leave. It makes, I get really hot about it. I wouldn't it. go back. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, you're we, spending how many hours? Two hours? Yeah. So what? I know. I know. I feel like really, I... that's never happened to me. No, yeah. that's hap- Two times I can think of that that's happened to me. Well, you're a paying customer, so you occupy the space. Well, then, of course, who, who suffers? Again, the wait staff, because you got hot, and you're going to leave a less than tip. Taylor Swift won Album of the Year at last night's Grammy Awards, which I was not uh, planning on watching because the last two seasons of the Grammys, like I just was kind of over it. Right. But it sucked me in, and so I turned it on, and I have to say I'm really glad I did. It was a good show. It, it was a trashy show in yep. a lot of ways, which should not be a surprise to anybody. I right. certainly wouldn't want to watch it with kids, which is stupid since it comes on at 8 o'clock at night. Right. So that's ridiculous. But just looking musically, um, I have to say there were some really beautiful moments. I read about this. Okay, so 
Tracy Chapman, Annie Lennox. Yeah, so they they talked about, uh, they did a little video thing, interview with Luke Combs talking about he grew up listening to Fast Car. And his dad's cassette And it was was a really great segment. And then the music starts, but it's Tracy Chapman playing it instead of him. (laughs) The opening of the... Total surprise. Total surprise. She looked terrific. She sounded terrific. Then Luke Combs, they did it together. That's cool. It was really, I thought that was really terrific. Um, Stevie Wonder came out. I haven't seen Stevie Wonder perform in a long time. He did a tribute to Tony Bennett. Did he? Um, Annie Lennox did a tribute to Sinead O'Connor. I also haven't seen her for a while. Um, John Batiste uh, did a great job. Uh, Billie Eilish, who I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah. I'm kind of over the, you know, uh, real. Yeah, exactly. But boy, that song that won Record of the Year, What Was I Made For? From the Barbie soundtrack. For every, right? every Christian in this society needs to listen to no that kidding. song. Every Christian, this is what our society is asking. What was I made for? It is a gorgeous song. I was really happy it was record of the year. Excellent. Good. Yeah. But the highlight for me, I can't believe I'm saying this, was Joni Mitchell, whose really? music I've never liked. I had no interest in seeing her last night. Not but a fan of Joni Mitchell. Not at all. Really? Not in any way, shape, or form. She came out at the age of 80. 80. And she sang both sides now. She was accompanied by Jacob Collier. Um, and uh, I don't remember who else was on stage. Brandy Carlisle. Oh, was it Brandy Carlisle? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was so sensitive and beautiful. Her singing that song at her age, it was really gorgeous. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. No I can't believe I'm saying that. That's why art is so powerful is that it takes it kind of throws your preconceptions back at you especially when it's live yeah because you think i don't like her right i'm not going to watch that and if you allow yourself to be surprised it can be such a wonderful experience and she really surprised me last night it was really beautiful billy joel came out at the end did he to uh play his first new song in 30 years (laughs) that's wild which wasn't in my opinion not a great song no yeah it really wasn't yeah but Afterwards, after the Grammys were over, he did, uh, I think it was Big Shot, he did. And it was fabulous. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox, right? Tribute to Sinead Mm -hmm. O'Connor. Nothing compares to you. How was that? Is what she's saying. As you would expect. It was Annie Lennox being theatrical Uh and powerful. I love her. I'm a fan of Annie Lennox. I wonder how old. I think Annie Lennox is probably 65. 65? No, no. Oh, older. older. Okay. Yeah, I would say 71, 72, somewhere in that ballpark. Well, she looks great. Celine Dion came out at the end, which was a big surprise. Uh, poor Celine Dion. Now, she had some, she has some she crazy has a, neurological She has thing, a neurological right? uh, thing called stiff person syndrome, which uh, interferes with her ability to walk and sing. Oh. But she came out. She looked great. Did she? Had, she? Yeah, she did. Did she perform? No, she did not. But she introduced uh, the final award of the night. And it was, she was received very warmly. Excellent. And I hope that was a good experience for mm-hmm. her because that's a very, very difficult diagnosis. Okay, so the Grammys are are like the Oscars, and, where you have a lot of people who are like artists, right. and you know they're suffering for their art, and there's a lot of outrageous behavior. What about Killer Mike? We haven't talked about Killer oh, Mike. Poor, uh, some guy, Killer Mike, I don't know. I don't know Killer he Mike. He won three Grammys. I mean, like Rap Song of the Year, Rap Album of the Year, Performance of the Year, and, and this is wild. As soon as he walked off stage, he was arrested by the LAPD and taken away in handcuffs. I mean, I mean you go from high, like That's a career kind of high... Night. I mean, so only the Grammys could provide that sort of, yeah. uh, you know, for lack of Will you of go back word. and watch anything online? Yes, I definitely okay, will. Okay, you need uh, yeah. to see the Joni Mitchell thing. Right. You should see Stevie Wonder, too. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.